Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 18th, 2017, and this is episode 1986, again, 1986 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to have a great show today. It's a Just Jack show because it's a Tuesday. And this is one of these days where I wake up in the morning and my wife says to me, Jack, what are you going to do a show about today? And I go, I don't know. I had no idea. And then I took a walk out in my property and uh, did my usual stuff, taking care of the baby ducks and the adult ducks. And the baby ducks are soon going to be with the adult ducks. And that will make my day shorter. And I walked around and I looked at this plant. I'll tell you what it's called later, but I looked at this plant that's in one of my water gardens and I realized, hey, dummy, you just found out that's not just a cool-looking water plant. That's a perennial vegetable. And I thought, you know, I've done shows on perennial vegetables before, but I bet you I can come up with a bunch of them that I haven't done before and maybe a few that I have done before that are worth putting in there. And I came up with a list of 12. And then I went through across the Internet and found sources for all of them. Some on Amazon, some other places, some through our supporting vendors, some through third-party sites that I really don't know of, just so you could at least see them. And uh, I gathered up some more information on the ones that maybe I'm a little weak on. I came up with a new concept for how I'm going to present this stuff today, bringing in some of the stuff we talked about recently, like container gardening and wicking beds and stuff like this, so that anybody can do it, and make it like very trouble-free. We're going to talk about all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Great Escape Farms. Great Escape Farms offers root cuttings of unique edible plants from their nursery. They also blog daily about permaculture and other homesteading topics over at greatescapefarms.com. You might want to check these guys out, uh, guys. They have Maypop available, which is the North American hardy passion flower. That's a perennial not today's show, but it certainly is something that's usable. They also have Murphy's Thornless Blackberry available and uh, American Elderberry available. And they have very reasonable pricing compared to a lot of places you would get this stuff otherwise, especially in smaller quantities like many of you want to buy. Anyway, so again, check them out, Great Escape Farms and the TSP Business Directory, where you can have your business listed for as little as $5 for six months. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. In the year of 1986, we have the Chernobyl meltdown and a state of fear. 
And we have Gorbachev introduces Preskostroika and Glasnost. Notable births this year, Jamie Bell from uh, Turn and Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen are born this year. Megan Fox is born this year from Transformers. Lindsay Lohan uh, of Parent Trap and I will say of Eternal Recovery. Uh, it was born this year. Rooney Mara, the girl with the dragon tattoo, born this year. In sports, Michael Phelps is born this year. And Allison Carroll, a gymnast, but more importantly, the model for Laura Croft. This year in film, Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Platoon, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Saving the Whales. I liked that one, Alex Strug said. I did too. It was goofy, but it was good. And probably one of the most famous movies of all time from the 80s, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ben Stein becomes famous with his line, Bueller, Bueller. Uh, this year in TV, Oprah Winfrey Show debuts, ALF debuts, L.A. Law debuts, and Fox becomes the fourth major network. This year in film we have That's What Friends Are For from Dionne Warwick, Papa Don't Preach from Madonna, and Walk Like an Egyptian from The Bangles. Alex Strug says the lyrics make no sense, but it's, a, but it's fun. I'll admit, when I was a teenager, and this band hit things big in mid-80s, especially when the video for the, uh, the song Eternal Flame came out, I was absolutely head over the heels teenager in love with Susanna Huffs. Absolutely. I, I don't say things like that often, but it just brought back a memory. That was one of those things when you're a teenager and you see somebody, and it, it kind of ties into yesterday's uh, song of the day, which is what made me think of it, because someone I never thought of that way, because, you know, predated me, um, Annette Funicello was in the song from yesterday, uh, the, the closing song from yesterday's show. I saw it on TV by John Fogarty. There's a line in that song that says, The A-bomb fears, pretty self-explanatory, Annette had ears. I lusted in my heart. I mean, we really don't think of Annette Fulicello in uh, uh, Mickey Mouse hat as being someone that you see as like this hot girl, but teenagers of the time. So I'm admitting my teen crush, the more things change, the more they say the same. We learn things in history sometimes when we go ahead and break down to our personal level, I guess. Anyway, uh, this year in video games, The Legend of Zelda comes out. Dragon Quest becomes the first role-playing video game. And Starflight, your mind different planets. The story behind the game is revealed later. I love this game, says Alex Shrugged. I'm going to read Chernobyl because it's something we're still seeing aftermath from today. Over the last few years, several nuclear power plant disasters have been averted, but people are nervous. So safety tests are conducted to assure the public and to assure people who maintain the plants The Chernobyl nuclear power plant is located 65 miles north of Kiev. It provides 10% of Ukraine's electrical power. Although few people realize that reactor number one went through a partial meltdown four years ago, so safety drills are a must. A power loss safety check is scheduled for April 26. The actual safeties are turned off because with any real power loss, the automatic safeties would kick in. The test is mostly for personnel because this type of nuclear reactor is unstable at low power levels. If the checklists for the power down are not followed exactly, everything goes boom. <clears throat> Someone misses a checkbox check and reactor 4 goes into meltdown. Two men are killed immediately. Reactor number 4's shift leader remains at his post. He is a dead man anyway. He attempts to restart the feed water into the re reactor and fails. The subsequent graphite fire is now pushing radioactive material up and over northern Ukraine and into Belarus. Millions of lives are in danger. The Soviet Union calls for liquidators, people who can kill the fire and encase reactor number four in concrete. In exchange, they will receive better food, better medical care, and such. 600,000 sign up. 
At least 6,000 will risk their lives, including firefighters, police, military personnel, and coal miners who will build a foundation under the reactor to prevent seepage of radioactive material into the groundwater. These people are heroes. 29 will die in the coming months. The supervisors of the safety operation will die nine years later of a heart attack. My take by Alex Shrug. FYI, 50 employees of the Fukushima nuclear plant remain at their post following the Tokohu earthquake and tsunami. The author Michael Crichton wrote about the Chernobyl disaster in the appendix of the novel State of Fear. He had initially considered terrorists attacking nuclear power plants rather than an environmental theme, but no matter how many ways he ran the scenarios, he could not create a worldwide disaster even if every single one of them blew up. Of course, if you're standing next to one, it's a complete disaster. But for the overall world population, no. I mean, sure, lives will be shortened, cancer rates will increase, but the number of people in immediate danger is actually quite small. Today, I think we are post most of the hysteria concerning nuclear power. It is dangerous, but many things are. Yet we balance usefulness with danger and make a decision. We could do that with nuclear power as well. I guess my add-on to the nuclear power issue is, We had an opportunity to start building thorium reactors back when we started building uranium reactors. We could have. But building uranium reactors is a step toward more advanced production of nuclear weaponry. So it just made sense for us to go that way. Thorium reactors are about as safe as power can get, let alone nuclear power. Power plants in themselves are dangerous. Think about what they're producing. But a thorium reactor just, if something goes wrong, it just... Stops. Does it go into meltdown? And yet, there's very little actually going on with the building of thorium reactors. And it's always made me wonder: Are the stories about what we could have from thorium reactors true, or are they bullshit? And the answer to that question is: Since it's beyond my ability to really influence, I just don't really know right now. I do know that the hysteria over nuclear reactors going nuclear um, is excessive, and I hope that I was a voice of calm during the Fukushima issue when people were running around buying iodine tablets like they were the last thing that would save your life on the planet and you needed one now. Uh, and everybody was saying that people would be dying in the United States within a couple of years of this and all the hysteria was going on and our favorite nut job, Alex Jones, was screaming and yelling because he wanted you to buy his special iodine tablets. I was like, just, just relax. Well, if you're in Japan and you're near this thing, worry about it. Everybody else just freaking chill. And I still hear from people today freaked out about Fukushima. It's not a good thing, but if you live here in America, it's not really going to affect your life. And if it is, worrying about it won't help you. My take by Jack Spierko. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Okay, so as I said in the intro section, what kind of sparked today's show was I was out walking around the homestead here, a little area in Nine Mile Farm, and uh, looking at some of my aquatic systems, and I, I looked at this plant that I've really become quite fond of just for the way it looks. It's called Bloody Dock, um, and 
It's Rumex Sangrisius. Sang, sang, just, I'm not going to try to do Latin, but I would say Sanguinenis, I think is probably the right way to say it, uh, which is basically Sangre is blood. So Rumex is actually a uh, sorrel species, but it's called a dock. And uh, I originally found this plant at Pond Megastore, or Pond, Pond Megastore is the name of the, the, the site. And I was just looking for aquatic plants, and I was looking for both floating plants and what you call emergent vegetation plants, or bog plants, plants that can grow submerged in water or just on the water's edge, things like that. And I just looked at it and thought, this is a really good-looking plant. I, I had no idea it was an edible. I should have thought about it, because many docks are edible. And uh, so I ordered a couple of them, and they didn't transplant very well. They're just now kind of coming back around. Um, and it was pro partly because I had so much going on and a family crisis going on when I got it, and I didn't really give it as much protection as I should. But in spite of kind of me kind of blowing it with their care, uh, now that they're kind of in a shaded area and I cut most of the dead leaves, it's just growing back from the center because it's a perennial. And uh, I was doing some research on it because I was thinking about getting some more, and I found and I saw just the the the, the phrase uh, a a, uh, a a garden vegetable or something like that, you know. And I was like, I started looking at information on it. It turns out while this will grow on the water's edge and it will grow as emergent vegetation, it is a good aquatic plant. It's not all that it is. It's actually a Mediterranean plant, and it just likes to be in moist soil all the time. So obviously aquatic systems are really good for growing it. And uh, so I don't have much to work with because I only have these two plants. And uh, But I cut a couple leaves off them and I tried it. And it's kind of a, a little bit bitter, a little bit sour like a sorrel would be, and, and sort of toward the, the, the way that you would expect the leaves of beets to taste. But it has its own unique characteristic. It also bleeds a little bit red. And I was looking at that plant and thinking about the fact that here's a plant that's so ornamental, that is perennial, that now I have another thing to provide food for us on the farm, and it's also an ornamental, it fits in aquatic systems, it'll work great in wicking beds because they're always moist. And I was like, I should do a show today on you know, 12 perennials for your homestead, maybe a little bit different take uh, than, I, than I have in the past. So kind of that's the first one. And I'll talk a little bit about what to do with it in a second, but I want to kind of talk about this different angle I'm coming at today. As you guys know from a show I recently did, I've gotten very big into aquaponics in the last year, thanks to my buddy David, who's shown me kind of a new way to look at it. And my, well, well I like what wiki, or I'm sorry, what flood and drain beds do, which is what everybody focuses on in aquaponics for the system health as a whole. What I've determined is my go-to technology for actually growing food in an aquaponics system is wicking beds. And I'm going to come at, at this with the concept of using wicking beds, whether you're doing aquaponics or not. Not necessarily you have to. In fact, many of these things will grow fine just right in the ground. But if you think about this, you can take something like the stock tanks that I've talked about in the past, 100-gallon stock tanks, from Tractor Supply that you can buy for between 60 and 80 bucks, depending on whether they're on sale or not, or any other large container. You put a float valve in them, and you can hook up a water source. It doesn't have to be aquaponics. It could be from your house. And then you 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 know you build your wicking bed. We're not going to go into how you do that today. You can listen to the show on aquaponics if you want to learn more about that. And you can look up online hundreds of different designs for doing wicking beds. And then your watering is just done. Whenever the water level drops, wherever you have a water source from, it just fills back up. 
And that can be done something that's very, very manual with float valves in your tanks. It's just an elevated thing like a garbage can with a lid on it so it stays, it doesn't get nasty. And once a week you fill the garbage can up with, with a garden hose. Or you can plumb it straight in your plumbing. Or if you have an aquatic pond-based you know, garden pond system like I do, you can do that. Or a full-on aquaponics system. And the beauty of that is you do not have to rely on your fish to provide you. I'm laughing because Lucy's eating some purple... Uh, Purple sweet potato greens that are on my desk right now because I was making slips today. Uh, and she's sitting in my lap, so this is an interesting podcast for her, I think. Anyway, so um, you, you you don't have to rely on fish for all of your nutrient. If it's in an aquaponics system, fine, it's there. But when you have a foot or more of soil, you don't want to overdo it in any kind of a you know aquaponics or aquatic system with liquid fertilizers like say garret juice or stuff like that. Though we can use them uh, in a in a uh, you know spraying them directly on on the plants in a foliar feed mode, um, but we don't really want to soak the soil with liquid fertilizers that overnutrify the system. But we can certainly use things like organic solid fertilizers in our wicking beds, and we can build soil in our wicking beds, and we can put worms in our wicking beds. And by doing that, we solve a lot of problems because we can set a wicking bed on a porch or a balcony if it's not too heavy, if the balcony will support it. We can put them anywhere we want. We can provide easily, we can provide frost protection. We can provide shade. We can provide shade so that they're shaded in the late afternoon when things are the hottest. There's just so much flexibility. So while I'm not going to actually suggest that all of these be planted in wicking beds, and some of them I'm going to actually tell you I think would be better off not planted in wicking beds, most of them can be. And it's an interesting way to look at doing things a little bit differently, especially for those of you who are on small properties. And I've realized that over the years as I've kind of evolved, and I started out when I did this show, and I had my little third of an acre place in Mansfield. Well, you know, that was even a big property for a lot of people in suburbia, but at least it was a suburban property. Then I moved to five acres in Arkansas, and I had about three quarters of an acre that I could actually use. And that was a pretty big property as well compared to what many of you guys have. Then I moved here, and I got three acres. And I have not... I feel done enough for the people that are on smaller properties. Conversely, if you're on a large property, these techniques like wicking beds and like intensive planting and like aquaponics, that's great for your zone one anyway because you can really get let things get out of hand. Trust me, I know, with larger properties as well. So that's kind of how I'm coming at this a little bit differently today, but all of these things grow well in the ground too. Okay? So what could we do with Bloody Dock? Well, just by tasting it and thinking about it, I can tell you that I believe that it would be fantastic in a salad raw with something like arugula, especially baby arugula. It would just be bang on solid there with a basic vinaigrette, some acid to cut through with it. I think it would make a fine saute with like arugula and spinach uh, or a lot of other things. I think garlic would pair well with it. Uh, onions, especially like a green onion, would pair well with it fine. And I think it would just go fine in any, any mixed green salad. And I kind of want to point out today that a lot of the greens that we're going to talk about today, they are not the best thing in the world if you just take a bowl of them and throw some salad dressing on it. you know. But if you think about it, that's not usually how we make a salad. I guess with the exception of a Caesar, uh, you know, we usually don't make a salad with a single leaf. And I think a lot of times people try things, whether it be a dandelion green, which is not on the list today but certainly could be, or chicory or something like that, 
And there's a bitterness, a sharpness, um, an off-putting characteristic that's often indicative of it being highly nutritious. And by itself, it's too much. But you take three or four greens that all have seem to have that sort of characteristic alone, and you blend them together, and you put a few other things with them, and you dress it with some nice dressing, and all of a sudden it's pretty good. So that's how I think bloody dog should be used. The next one I have for you is the one that I'm going to say is probably the the most likely that you'd be better off growing into the ground if you want to grow a lot of it. But I think it would still work in large wicking beds quite well, especially in shady areas. And it's a plant that, that people buy all the time. I mean, all the time for decoration and never even think about eating it. And it's called ostrich fern. I'm sorry, ostrich fern. I'd like to say ostrich fern. Ostrich fern is in ferns. Now, many of you that are foragers will be familiar with the ostrich fern, even if it's not what you call it, um, because you'll know the thing called a fiddlehead. So if you if you took one of these ferns and tried to eat it when it was like all growing and looking like you think of a fern, it, it wouldn't really taste very good. They actually have a similar flavor to asparagus, but I like them a lot more, and I think they have less of that kind of over-the-top flavor that asparagus can have going on. And when you think about it, asparagus is a fern. And, the, and asparagus, by the way, is another great perennial uh, crop that you can grow. When we plant asparagus crumbs in the ground, what we have is we have our, our shoots come up, and we snap them off before they grow into a full you know, size plant and then go into this very, very thin, leafy fern, very, very needle-like fern. Um, well, we do the same thing with ostrich fern. And what happens is, as they come up, they're in, they're, they call them fiddleheads, they're in little coils. And when they're about two to four inches long, before they start to unfurl, you snap them off. Now, here's the thing. They need to be cooked, and they need to be cooked long enough, or they can cause dietary upset and even some toxic effects. But cooked, they're just fine. This is a seasonal perennial vegetable, meaning it grows all year, but you can only harvest it at this particular stage, and you need to not over-harvest it. Now, if you live somewhere where these things are wild and they're everywhere, like when I was in Florida, they were all over in the pine forest, and up in Canada, there's just massive amounts of them. These are very, very adaptable. They can handle zone Eight all the way down to like zone three. Let me make sure I got that right on the bottom end because I have all the zones for these. I'll go back. Bloody Dock goes down to zone four, by the way. So Ostrich Fern goes down to zone three. And I've seen them grow in Florida. So where I lived in Florida was almost zone nine. And it's all about shade and the right climate and the right amount of moisture. So while I say this would be the one you want to put in the ground, if you live like where I do and you just wanted a harvest of these every year, you know, a wicking bed full of this ostrich fern, and your wife's happy because it's an ornamental, but you can just snap off some fiddleheads during the year, so that's another way that you would use this. But these are considered like a delicacy. I'm talking five-star freaking restaurants serve fiddleheads. And the way to cook them generally is they're boiled for between five to ten minutes. And I kind of err to the caution side of you know, boil uh, at, about, at about ten minutes, and then quickly sautéed, and then served. And there's a lot of people make soups out of them, stuff like that. You can do all that other stuff. But my view is that just that way with a little bit of salt and pepper is the way to go. You can sauté them in butter, and they're good. You can sauté them in bacon fat, and they're really good. Or you can get a little bit creative and use an infused oil. My favorite oil to use with fiddleheads is chili garlic oil. And I, I mean, it literally is a absolute high-end experience from a dining standpoint eating these things. And this is, 
This is peasant food when you really think about it. This is, you know, early settlers' food. This is Native Americans' food. It's also something, again, that is limited to the time of year when they're in that sprouting phase. And you, again, you, especially when you're growing your own, you don't want to over harvest them. Now, here's the good thing there are ferns that you really shouldn't eat, and there's ferns that you should. And I really recommend if you're going to forage these, that you make damn sure you know how to identify ostrich fern from some of the other ferns that are native in our climate to avoid that confusion. And getting someone who knows what they're talking about to show you is a good idea. But if you buy your plants, and basically usually buy roots that come up, just like you do asparagus for ostrich fern, uh, or from any known supplier, you buy a full adult plant or whatever, and you plant that, then you know that that's ostrich fern. And, you know, again, I think that if you just one big wicking bed pretty much dedicated to that, and there's some other things you can grow that would come up high above your ferns uh, from an ornamental standpoint, you'd have that one delicacy there. If you have an area around your property that you can irrigate or it stays naturally moist and it's shaded, I'm talking like 60%, 70% shade at least in the south, this is a fantastic place to just grow them in the wild or on the ground or what have you, however you want to look at that. And I would do it here, but I don't know that I have a place that they'll survive. I have a couple ideas for places that they just might work out. But uh, my ground is pretty harsh. So it's something I haven't enjoyed for a very long time because they just don't grow around here in the wild. But uh, I, as I was doing the research for the show, I was like, man, I love those. Because where I grew up in Pennsylvania, there was a couple stands of these things where every year we went out and harvested them. So you can check out ostrich fern. And I do have a, a link to a source where you can get them, and it is an ostrich fern. I've looked at it and verified that. The next one I have is something that a lot of you may have grown, but many of you have not realized that they can be perennial. How about a perennial bean? I bet you're saying there, there is no such thing, Jack. There's no such thing as perennial bean. Well, if you live zone 6 or higher, and if you're in zone 6, if you will take you know, the step of doing a lot of mulch over the roots of these plants, there is a perennial bean. And it's a it's a pretty awesome bean because you can use it as a young pod green bean or you can let it grow into a full-on, like, size soup bean. And they're beautiful and they're ornamental as well. It's called the scarlet runner bean. Uh, Bill Mollison, I remember reading one of his papers, he said they are about, this is from the old man himself, they are about the best damn beans in the world. And I didn't know that they were perennial. And uh, I had no, I didn't know about them in Mansfield. I didn't grow them in Arkansas, and until I put in wicking beds here, they couldn't survive here. Uh, between the alkalinity of the soil and you know, you got to find a place where a duck won't eat the young bean sprout uh, for it to survive long enough to get any kind of headway. Uh, so I've, I'm growing them this year in my aquaponic system. But in the research for the show, I found out that they are perennial and sometimes live over 20 years in gardens and continue to propagate themselves and grow. The key with them is, and I think this would be true anywhere, you know, zone 8 or to zone 6, is you need to really mulch over the root area of them. But I have eaten them. I, there was a, a lady in Pennsylvania that used to grow them, and I don't know whether she knew they were perennial or not, but... Uh, they're a fantastic green bean. And remember, for those of you that are kind of on the paleo-primal world, there's disagreement, but many, many people in that world feel if we eat them before the bean seeds truly develop, we're eating more of a green vegetable than a legume. They're also a nitrogen fixer, and they, again, they are beautiful. They call them scarlet because that's what the flowers are. They almost look like a scarlet honeysuckle that produces an edible bean. Best way to use these, I'm not a big person on cooking dry beans, and I don't think, unless you have a lot of space, you're going to grow enough dry beans to really make a bunch of big pots of beans. 
I mean, that's for the people that have the, you know, the large, you know, quarter acre or larger gardens, I think you can dedicate that kind of space. But these, you pick them when the pods are young, hot oil, um, like this would be something to do with the chili pepper oil that I've talked about how to make before, which is basically chili garlic pepper oil, um, black peppercorns, Thai chilies, and garlic. And you heat it till it's just like it's just about to start cooking. Like you just see one or two little bubbles forming and you kill the heat, you put the lid on it, and uh, you, you let it cool. You dump it in a blender, you blend it till it's just, there's nothing left of it. You emulsify the hell out of it. And then you strain it because there's a lot of pulp that'll be in there. You strain that oil and put it in a jar and keep it in the refrigerator because it can go rancid on you after you've done that. And you've used things like live garlic. And even though you've heated it, you're probably heated heat, heat enough to absolutely kill off uh, botulism. So keeping it refrigerated is the way to go. And you, you use that oil and a couple tablespoons of that and get it good and hot. So you want to use like peanut oil for this, not olive oil. So you can cook at higher temperatures. And uh, you take any, any green beans and that chili garlic pepper oil And you just get your oil hot first, throw them in there when they're still bright green, when they still have a little bit of, uh, think of like al dente, like with the pasta, where they still have a little bit of hold back when you chew into them. And uh, take those out and then hit them with a little bit of sea salt and black pepper. Uh, fantastic. If you do a little bit of break, bacon crumble on top of it, you know, no one will complain. So that's another perennial that I think most people don't realize is perennial. But again, the key to those is heavy mulch. Now, my fourth one is plain old sorrel. So when I did Bloody Dock, it's actually basically a type of sorrel, but I'm talking like English sorrel, English garden sorrel. Um, this is a great plant to grow. It's going to be one of your first plants to come up in spring. It's going to be some of your first greens that you can harvest. It's hardy to zone three. It has kind of a lemony characteristic to it. It's really good as a salad green, and it's really good in soups. It's also easy to propagate all sorrels. So the bloody dock I talked about now and then the English garden sorrel in the spring when they really start to go gangbusters and start to really grow out, what will happen is you get to a point where the leaves start to get really bigger and uh, they, they just aren't as, as, as sweet and tender as they are when the, the new growth's coming up. And again, don't over-harvest. But at that point, they'll start to see it kind of expand outward from a tight clump. And at that point, you can dig them up and do division and then replant them. And trimming them down quite a bit at that point is a good idea to cut down a transpiration, which is basically a plant sweating. So whenever we put a plant in stress, it's really a good idea to remove some of the green. Leave enough for it to do its thing with, with, with photosynthesis, with the sun, but reduce the transpiration and make sure we keep it in shade and cool. And, and both of these will propagate really well for you with division. They both also propagate pretty easily from seed, to my understanding. And I've got a link to seed for both of them. Uh, but, but sorrel, English garden sorrel, I think is really a great, um, we call it basically a pot herb, to add to soups. And it adds a lemony zinginess to soups. And kind of, a, a, kind of like a, a collard green in texture, but you don't have to cook it as long as a collard green to get it to where you want to eat it, I guess would be a way to look at it. So one of the soups that this is absolutely freaking fantastic in, just think lemon. What's the next word out of your mouth? You're thinking lemon and cooking food, lemon chicken, right? So a chicken soup done with lemon sorrel uh, and something like oyster mushrooms. And oyster mushrooms are the one of the mushrooms I actually prefer to use a dehydrated oyster mushroom. 
So the way you could use these, you take your dehydrated oyster mushrooms and you soak them in some water to rehydrate them. Just maybe, you know, put it on the, the, the pot on, on water and bring them up to just where they start to simmer. Kill them. Let them soak for a while. Remove your oyster mushrooms and slice them up. Okay, and set them aside because we don't want to overcook them. There's a little bit of toughness to an oyster mushroom when it's been dehydrated. We kind of want to preserve that. That water's what we're going to make our chicken stock in now. Now, if we already have pre-made stock, then we would just use our stock when we added those. So we're going to infuse that little bit of oyster mushroom flavor into them from the rehydration process. Then we're going to go ahead and simmer our chicken until we can pull it off the bone in there. Uh, and then we're going to um, debone the chicken, add it back in. Of course, we're going to use salt and pepper, all the, all the good stuff we normally would. And then at this point is when you have it all kind of back together. I would go ahead and add your mushrooms at that point. So the chicken's done, basically. You have chicken broth with chicken in it. Uh, season the way you like it. Fresh parsley, fresh sorrel, and your oyster mushrooms. And you serve people that, and it's it's like a it's chicken soup, but it's like a gourmet thing. It's like you never had anything like that before, and and those flavors really go fantastic together. So that's how you can use that one. And again, it's another perennial. It's sorrels. Docks, etc., all like to stay moist. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to be wet, but they can be. But they like clay soils. So if you have a clay area that's not now, if it's compacted really hard, it may take a while for them to do their magic and break things up. But you have kind of a clay loam area where it stays moist most of the time. Docks, sorrels are good things to put into those. But fantastic in a wicking bed. And again, we can plant a lot more densely in these wicking beds because we're bringing everything we need right to the plant. And the plant's never drying out. All we need is enough space to allow airflow and growth habitat for our plants. Next up, one I've talked about a bunch of times in the past, but I really want to talk about this one from the standpoint of doing it in wicking beds because of something I learned from Dave Jackie, who's just an incredible guy. Um, it's Jerusalem artichoke. So this was what I learned from Dave Jackie about doing Jerusalem artichoke. He had bought a house And he moved into it, and there was basically like this cinder block pit. Like, he didn't know if maybe they were planning on doing a, a grill. Like, it was just basically built up a couple feet tall wall, cinder blocks with a hole in the middle, a fairly large hole, maybe, let's say, three foot by three foot square. And he didn't know what to do with it, and he didn't have time to jack around with it, and he thought if they did want that as a, as, a, as a grill, it's a bit close to the wall of the house to do that, so I'll use it as a compost pit. So he just starts throwing like all his trimmings from the garden, everything in there, not worrying about turning it, just doing basically the slow compost, just throw it in there. Well, after about a year at some point, he had gotten it pretty full, and he threw some stuff out of the garden that included some little bits of Jerusalem artichoke tubers in it. And because it was so nutrient-dense, and because if you have a little piece of Jerusalem artichoke, you're going to get a bunch of Jerusalem artichokes. He had a bunch of little pieces. That spring, he's out throwing stuff in, and he sees all these little shoots coming up out of the compost. And he looks at them and realizes, well, it's Jerusalem artichoke. He says, well, the hell with it. Just let it grow. And here's the beauty. It's Jerusalem artichoke prison. They can't spread where I don't want them. Because they can't get out. It's concrete. So he thought, well, that's nice. And if you're at the end of the season, he'll have a bunch of Jerusalem artichokes. So he gets to the end of the season, the first big frost hits, they die back, and that's really when you want to harvest them. And he's, he's wondering, like, how well did they do? Well, since it's this, such light, airy stuff, he sticks his arm down in there, and he realizes, like, 90% of the tubers are right up against the wall. 
They're all, the, all the tubers are set against the wall. So he does some research and he figures out why. Jerusalem artichokes try to outcompete other plants, so they basically send out a runner until they hit something. A rock, another plant, what have you. And then they'll set a tuber there, and then they come up so early in the season that they can disrupt other plants. He said in one instance he saw a garden that was planted with a lot of perennials, and there was an asparagus patch, and there was Jerusalem artichokes near them, and one of the Jerusalem artichokes came out, hit the, the, the crumb, which is the root structure of the asparagus, turned underneath, and set a tuber. And in the spring, just as the asparagus was starting to send up its thing, the Jerusalem artichoke came up and pushed the whole plant, whole asparagus crumb out of the ground, popped it out like a popcorn. So this natural way this plant behaves, if we put it into any kind of a contained wicking bed container garden, as long as it's large enough to accommodate something like Jerusalem artichokes, we're going to have it set most, not all, but most of the tubers on the side, which makes harvesting really easy. But do you know what else this does for us? I, I want to talk to you right now, kind of in the middle here, about what does perennial mean? And how we define perennial versus maybe how we should define perennial as growers, gardeners, and homesteaders. So a true perennial, it doesn't die, it comes back every year. That's what makes it so great. So when we plant something like, oh, I don't know, a perennial like uh, ornamental, like a rose, which also has a yield that can give us things like rose hips and rose petals, but just a straight ornamental. Well, understand, we plant a rose here and we plant a marigold here. At the end of the season, when everything freezes and the marigold dies, it's done. Maybe it's dropped seed, maybe some will sprout, maybe some won't, but it's done. Over here where we planted our rose, we can prune it, do whatever we want for maintenance, but in the next spring, it's going to come back. It basically holds, like a tree, it holds its life in its roots. So that's the strict definition of a perennial. I'm cheating a little bit with Jerusalem artichokes because they're not perennials. They don't come back. The tuber you plant this year will expend all its energy. And a lot of times when you dig up Jerusalem artichokes, you'll find the original, what we call the seed tuber. And if you pick it up, it's hollow. It's expended all its energy. It gave it to the, the new plant, and the new plant has set new tubers. But they'll come back. So really, Jerusalem artichokes, by strict definition, are an annual but they behave in our systems like a perennial in that they are so reliably self-propagating, they're going to come back next year and next year and next year and next year, unless we go out of our way to completely eradicate them. So the other issue I've had with Jerusalem artichokes is they're so productive, you end up giving up so much cooler space to them because you can't just set them on a shelf. You can't hang them up and cure them like potatoes and put them in a cellar and just leave them there. They need moist, cool environments. Well, where's moist and cool in the wintertime? In the ground. So unless you have a place that's going to freeze completely solid through, and even then they survive, they're hardy to zone um, three, okay? You, as long as you can get your hand in the ground, you can harvest them all the way until spring until they start growing again. And even when they start to put a few shoots on, you can still keep harvesting them. So growing them in a wicking bed or container garden system of some sort, we can put a few tubers into a, a you know a large container system, and they'll grow nice and tall like they always do. They look kind of look like a sunflower uh, with small sunflowers on them, and they'll set all their tubers on the sides. And when winter comes and we're ready to start harvesting, all we need to do then is cut down all the stalks, just cut them off at the ground level. 
Chop them up, compost them, use them for mulch in one of your outside systems, do whatever you want. Chop them up and throw them right on top of there if you want to, right on top. Let the worms feed during the, the, the summer. Put a good mulch layer on top to help keep from over-freezing so that we can get our hands down in there. Okay, And then whenever we need some through our winter, we just come out and pull, pull tubers out. Instead of harvesting them all at once. And we know that there's going to be a great set all around the side. Well, here's the other thing we know. There's going to be some in the center. There's going to be some a little deeper, some a little shallower, etc. You are never going to get every piece. In fact, the way that you would kill them is don't harvest them at all. I've heard from people that have done this. They just, ah, I don't feel like harvesting them this year. And they don't come back sometimes, sometimes. Because they're so crowded, they choke each other. Maybe they come back one season. If you don't harvest them again, they're just done. They've, they've choked themselves out. They've exceeded the capacity of their land, and they've, they've atrophied off, and they've pioneered the, the land into something for someone new. But if we harvest most of them, or lots of them, the ones that remain are going to return next season and behave like a perennial. Now, what's kind of the best way to use Jerusalem artichokes? Okay, I'll give you three things, but I'll tell you that there's a nickname for them called fartichokes, and that's because some people, including me, uh, when we eat them raw or cooked certain ways, it makes us gassy. The good news, if there is such a thing, and this is truth, I'm not making this up, no real odor. It's a weird, weird, gassy thing. Like, lots of noise. I'm being honest and serious with you. Um, lot, and some people really bad, some people not so much, some people not at all. But you don't, you don't, like, no one wants to leave the room other than you heard it, so it's in your head. They, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So the best way to use them, if you don't want them to create the gassy thing, is that you use them in a ferment. And you ferment them in a standard uh, fermentation brine. And once you've done that with them, they kind of get that sour um, fermentation, that tanginess, but they re retain a lot of their sweetness as well. And it converts some of the, the, uh, the sugars in them. And the sugar in them is in a form of inulin which actually is great for people that want to be low-carb, slow-carb, low-blood-sugar response. And that's why your body breaks them down a bit differently. They produce gas. When we, when we ferment them, they still stay, stay a low-glycemic index food, but they, they convert enough that we don't do the conversion in our bodies, so they don't produce that off-gas. So what's actually happening when you're eating raw Jerusalem artichoke or you're eating Jerusalem artichoke that's cooked you know, the way most people would do it, because um, it tastes good, some of that fermentation is happening inside you. It just doesn't have to be, it just not, it's not like you ate a bunch of beans and then everybody wants to leave the house. So I know it's not the most comfortable discussion for some people, but it's, it's important that you know this. So the best way I've ever had them is you slice, like everybody peels them, I don't get it, there's no need to peel them, I wash them really good, slice them up about a quarter inch thick, and fry them like potatoes in, in like peanut oil. A little salt and pepper, they taste like french fries. <laughs> and they're very, they taste like very good french fries. They can get a little soft, and they can get a little bit easy to, uh, to kind of turn into a mush if you're not careful. So I'm saying pan fry just enough oil to make them work, and like a single layer at a time, get them out and drain on a paper towel or something like that. That's the easiest and, and like best tasting way, I think. Uh, ferment fermentation is good, but they don't really come out good fried then. Then they're good chopped up and thrown in a salad or something. The other way is you take like a mandolin or like a grater, like a box grater the side that does just those slices, and do thin slices and put them into a salad. Done that way, they're not going to cause a lot of gastric distress because you're just not using that many of them. 
Then there's another way. I've never tried them, but supposedly they have no gas symptoms anymore once you do it. You basically make a parjaw out of them, and they cook for like a day, like 24 hours, really slow cooked. And they come out like a um, like a potato, like, like a mashed potato type, sweet mashed potato thing. Um, I don't really know that I would like them that way, but they may make a good bedding for a sauce or something like that, so you can look that up. But my favorite way is fried, and we just you know deal with the aftermath. Uh, and my, I guess my second favorite way is fermented, and I'm going to try fermenting them this time around with, with like some hot peppers. I think that might actually make them even better. My next one is another annual that behaves like a perennial, and it is hardy down to zone four, possibly zone three. Many of you that are foragers are very familiar with this plant, but it's lamb's quarters. And this is an underrated plant. Um, If you let a few of them go to seed every year, you will have more. They will come back. Um, they've become a lot more scarce around here because my ducks understand that they're good to eat as well. But these are so reliable in returning that there are people that are otherwise really switched on about plants that you know have said, well, they're perennials. Um, Dave from Dave's Garden, and I think it's all things plants now because he sold the Dave's Garden site, uh, he had a guest on that seemed pretty switched on about perennial vegetables. Years ago, I remember listening to this, and his guest said that lamb's quarters were perennial. And Dave was like, oh, yeah, okay, I didn't know that. And like, they're not. They're an annual. If you, if you cut the stalk down to the root and you wait for something to happen, that root's never coming back. It's done. It's a one-year plant. However, one mature plant produces about a pound of seed. A pound. I filled up half of a half-gallon bag, so a quart of seed, off of one plant. And they're very small, high-protein seed, by the way, that can be used mixed into other things, like they can be used to fortify flowers and things like that to make them higher protein. And they have like a nutty kind of taste. But the, the real value to the plant as something to eat is the greens. As they get bigger and bigger, their, their leaves get kind of mealy and not so good. It's the young plants, and as you're cutting off and new growth comes back, the new shoots are pretty good too. They're okay raw in a salad. They're really great either sautéed, like, again, just butter and garlic, and wilted like a spinach thing. And then now you can start to stack things together. So you take some of your sorrel and some of your lamb's quarters and maybe some chicory and maybe some spinach and arugula, and you do a saute with that with a little bit of bacon grease as a bacon crumble on it, a little bit of feta cheese. Awesome. I mean, it's gourmet-level quality. But, again, they come back so reliably. And it's when your plants are like a foot tall or lower when they're best to harvest. Now, here's the thing. They are an annual. But if when they're a foot tall, maybe 10 inches tall, you cut them down and you leave about two, three inches of plant and you leave some leaves down there, it'll start a new shoot and it'll regrow. And at some point, you got to just pick a few that you're not going to harvest and you let them get big and they'll put on a ton of seed. If you want to collect the seed, you cut the, you wait till they start to turn black, you cut the seed head off, you hold it over a five-gallon bucket, and you start raking your hands. And you'll have more seed than you ever know what to do with. But if you just leave them alone, you're going to have lamb's quarter popping up everywhere. A lot of people consider it a weed, but I don't consider something that grows itself, tastes good, and self-propagates itself, and it's actually pretty easy to control to be a weed. I wish I had more of it. Basically, I have it growing around my little ponds where it's fenced in and the ducks can't get to it. When I moved in here, I had, I had, before anything else would grow, I had wild lamb's quarter growing 
wild lamb's quarter and amaranth, wild amaranth, pigweed amaranth growing everywhere. It was the only thing that would grow. Neither of it is very prominent anymore because the ducks have eaten it, grazed it, and helped the land success forward. But that doesn't mean we can't plant it where we want it to grow. I'll probably start planting it down by my big pond soon. Uh, I have a bunch of seed I just forgot to throw out last year uh, because they can't get down there and it would be a good thing to grow. But again, that's a, a great plant. And that's a good one for you guys to look for a foraging location for as well. Because if you have it growing wild, why go through the work to plant it yourself? The next one is one of those plants that, that does grow a lot in the wild anymore, but it's not native. To not, by the way, lamb's quarters isn't either. Uh, lamb's quarters is a chimpodium species that is from Asia. Uh, there's also chinopodium species that are from South and Central America, but I believe lamb's quarters is from Asia and was brought here because it was a good food source and a good grazing source. And today people have it in their pastures and are trying to get rid of it. Cattle eat it, sheep eat it, goats eat it, horses eat it, doesn't cause any problems for them, and we want to get rid of it. Propagates itself. You know, the, the thing is, if we're grazing it properly, it's going to stop propagating itself. It's never going to put seeds on. We need to actually leave some to go to full maturity for it to propagate itself, and yet people seem to have a problem with it. Next one also was brought here from Asia, and it's something that you see grown all over the place ornamentally, and you've seen the highway departments plant ornamentally all over the place because it's so tough and it does so well in you know on its own, and it's daylilies. And you got to be careful with lilies. You want to make sure you're using a true day lily, but day lilies are a true perennial, meaning they're not like lamb's quarters and Jerusalem artichokes, which cover they behave like a perennial. They're hardy to zone four. Okay, so the day lily we break down into four components that are edible. We have the flowers before they are open, the buds. We have the stalks, which are generally peeled down till you see the white part. Um, we have the flowers once they are open, and we have the tubers, which kind of look like fingerling potatoes. And a word of caution here, there are true lilies and there are day lilies. And if you have any doubt, you need to verify, 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 and verify again that you're eating a true lily. One of the things that you can look at, though, is, to, this is to my knowledge, if it's not a day lily and it's a lily, it'll have like a bulb, where a day lily has like a, like a little fingerling potato-looking tuber. Okay, so and that's kind of sort of what they taste like. So let's talk about the four components of these things and how we can use them. Let's start with the unopened flower. These are fantastic. This is this is you know saute them in butter, salt, pepper, and maybe a little bit of garlic and go on your way. And that's all you really need to do with them. And they are an incredible side dish. They can be used in stir fries and things like that as well. Uh, very, very good. Very, very edible. You'll you, when you try them, you'll wonder why everybody doesn't eat them. You'll wonder why they're not in restaurants. That that's how good they are. Once that flower opens, it's more of a color thing. Uh, in Asian cuisines, like hot and sour soup, they're used to like thicken the broth the way we use okra to do that with uh, you know like uh, Cajun stuff. Um, it, more for that, they don't have a lot of flavor at that point. And they're, they're, but they're, they're nice for color, but they are kind of cool, like to throw on a salad or something like that, just for color, because you can eat them raw as well. But again, not a lot of flavor, kind of big for that usage. So I kind of think that once they're into the flowering mode, we just let them go. And by the way, these things will bud and flower, bud and flower, bud and flower for like a very long window during their, their season. So there's, there's that going for it. Uh, then there's the stalk. I don't like it. I don't think it tastes very good. I would only eat it if I had nothing else to eat. It doesn't taste bad. It just doesn't taste good. And it's kind of tough. 
I've never tried them really, really young, and maybe they're better that way, and maybe somebody that has, it's a forager, will write in and let me know that. However, with how good the flowers taste, if I was pulling stems before they had put up buds, uh, and I knew I was costing myself buds, I would go back to eating the buds. So that's kind of, so the flowers, they're fine, but they don't really have a lot of flavor. The blossoms, before they open, when they're little, little shoots, those are the best. And then the, the, the stalks, you know, take it or leave it as far as I'm concerned. The tubers. Imagine a, a slightly sweet fingerling potato. That's kind of what they're like. Uh, those are fantastic, kind of roasted, basically. Cut them in half and put the open side down in a, a skillet with a little bit of oil and get them to brown a little bit. Throw them in the oven for you know maybe five ten minutes depending on how you want them done till they're finished. And those are the bomb. And, and you serve them as a side dish, just like you would roasted fingerling potatoes. Now here's the thing: these things propagate very well for through division. So what happens? And if you just leave them alone, what will happen is they'll just the clump of them will get bigger and bigger and bigger as they expand out. And eventually the center will actually start to die out and they'll make almost like a same thing comfrey will do. It'll make almost like a ring at some point. But then it kind of starts invading back into that. So you get a bigger and bigger. And they're, they're actually considered almost a weed in a lot of states. I think they have gone native in every state but California and Alaska or something like that. So they're, they're probably where you are somewhere. You've probably seen them growing on the side of a highway somewhere. Uh, so, again, they're another thing you can forage if you don't grow. But if you want to propagate them and kind of control the propagation of them, the best thing to do is to wait till they're dormant. Uh, and a really good time to do this is like right after they go dormant, after the first frost and all, and we dig them up and you pull all those little tubers apart and then you replant the ones you want to plant. Well, that's a perfect time to harvest them. So by doing that, we can just take what we want and replace whatever we want to grow again. And we can get... You know, if not four, two really good yields every year. We can get a tuber yield, and we can get a a a, a bud yield. I guess you'd call it the little. I, I don't know what you would call them, but the bl closed blossoms, which I think is the just amazing. It, it's hard to even explain until you've had them. And again, then you look at this and go, I've been driving past these my whole life. Well, we can grow them on our own property and have complete control over them that way. And again, thinking about growing them in wicking beds, and I'm going to be putting in so many wicking beds for next season that I can have dedicated beds for stuff like this. Always moist. You know, your tubers are there, and you can you can divide those tubers up anytime from when they go. Well, you don't have to wait for them even to go dormant. Really, it's just better that you do all the way until they start, uh, you know, growing the next year. So we can store a lot of them in the ground and just harvest them as we need them. We can harvest them in spring or fall. And just, again, we need to make sure we leave enough behind uh, that we can propagate our next generation uh, out ahead of them. The next one I have is uh, Good King Henry. And you can eat both the, uh, the flower buds and the seeds and the young shoots. And it's kind of sort of toward the asparagus side of things, especially the shoots. Uh, the leaves are more a little bit like uh, like a spinach-type substitute. Uh, and the flower buds, again, we're back kind of toward the asparagus side of things. This is hardy down to zone three. Uh, a lot of the, 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 the literature that I've read says it kind of peters out after zone seven. It gets too hot. Uh, I've talked to people who have grown it all the way into zone nine with shade and good moisture. So I think that's going to be the key. Um, you can buy seeds. I have a link to a source that sells live plants in the show notes today. And the reason is I've never been able to get it to germinate. 
I've never successfully grown good King Henry. I've eaten it where other people have. I like it. I think it's a great plant. Uh, it's extremely hardy, and it will propagate by division. And supposedly, you know, if you let it go to seed, the seeds will come up. But again, I've not been able to ever get good, good King Henry to sprout from seed. So this is one that I would recommend that you consider, you know, buying live plants if you really want to, you know, definitely have it in your garden. Or you can try your hand at starting the seeds. I've just found it to be difficult, and I've done some reading that suggests that other people find it as well. But this is also a plant that comes out very early in the year and is, is usable. Like as soon as it starts growing any size at all, you can start taking some from it. The older it gets, the, the larger the root system will be, the more resilient it will be, the more that will grow back. Uh, it's a great plant to consider adding to your homestead. And something unique. And again, you have to start thinking about combining these things. So we got some sorrel, we got some young arugula, we got some good King Henry. We do a saute with that. You know, you start to realize like how these things all compound into each other rather than being standalones. The next one I have for you is Egyptian onions, also called Egyptian walking onions. As far as how to use them in your kitchen, you use them like onions. And you can either use the, the bulbs that are under the ground or you can use the little bulblets that grow up on the top. And you use them anywhere and everywhere that you'd use like onions, shallots, garlic. So I don't think we need to have a, a big recipe section on what to do with onions. The reason they're called walking onions is you've probably seen various alliums like garlics, etc. put little bulblets on at the top of their, of their shoots. And a lot of times those little bulblets are good to eat. And boy, with these things, they are. They're a very mild onion. They're, they're fantastic to harvest the bulblets as a food source. But if you don't do anything, eventually what happens is they get they swell up and they get big enough that the, the onion stalk falls over and makes contact with the ground. When it does, all those bulblets set roots and it propagates a new plant. And and they re-propagate re, uh, so much so that some you, if you go to buy these, you actually might find that it, it's hard to get them shipped to some states because some states have in, it, it banned them as an invasive species. Now, I've talked a little bit about this before, but... I think, personally, this is one of those examples of pointless um, ban by the, the state. There is, there's nothing these things really do that harms an ecosystem. They don't displace other things. Um, they don't take over a whole field. They just don't do that, but you know how the state is. Um, you may be able to find somebody selling them on eBay. I do have a link to where you can get them uh, on, on the web as well. Um, but if you can't get them shipped to your place from the source I have linked to, uh, again, you can check eBay. There's a lot of stuff that you can't get shipped to you from a licensed nursery or whatever. I'm just going to say you can find it on eBay, and the guys that are selling on eBay don't, don't have a nursery license or whatever, and they, they ship to anybody that pays them. And uh, it doesn't seem that anybody does anything about it. And you know how I feel about a little bit of counter-economics and agorism, so I have no problem with that. So that would be a, a place to look for them. But uh, these would be great grown in you know, wicking bed container systems as well, because one, you're containing them. But two, that just that constant moist environment, onions are going to do really well in there, and it gives you something that has multiple parts that can be used. You've got the underlying uh, bulb underneath, like any onion. You've got the little bulblets. You've got the green part. Uh, and very, very easy to, even though they're a perennial and kind of propagate themselves, basically control the propagation of. Uh, as you're harvesting, you just, you now this bulblet goes here and that bulblet goes there, and the rest of these go in the house with me, and you go on with your life. Uh, they are also very hardy, hardy down to zone 4, USDA zone 4. I've classified them as a true perennial because they will come back from the root that grew the year before, so they are a true perennial as well. 
The next one is something that a lot of people have heard of. Many people have never actually had it in a proper way, I guess, is the way that I would put it. And that's horseradish. If you think that horseradish is creamy stuff that comes out of a jar from the store that when you read the ingredients has more ingredients on it than grated horseradish, you don't really know what horseradish is. Now, you can add a little bit of vinegar uh, to give it a little bit of a pickle type thing going on. Uh, one of my favorite ways to eat it is you take the, the red juice uh, from pickled beets and add a little bit of that to it to give it a little bit of color. But horseradish is, is I mean, the way you make horseradish sauce is you take a horseradish root, you peel it, And you grate it, and you take grated horseradish, and that's that's your horseradish sauce. It's a little bit more uh, pungent that way, but that's the way it's designed to be. And if it's too pungent, use less of it. And then you can do things with it, like add it to mustard for you know something to put on bratwurst and things like that. It, it's just fantastic that way. As far as it being perennial, if you do nothing, it'll just keep growing and keep subdividing and keep going. So it, it's a true perennial. But the way that we always grew it in Pennsylvania, we had this area that had been really, really fortified with composted horse manure from the, the neighbor across the street that we had there. And uh, every year, <clears throat> I would go down and harvest the horseradish. And I would just take a, a fork and go into the ground and lift it all out and pull all of it that I could find out of the ground and throw it in the wheelbarrow. And I would hose it off, set it out to dry a little bit, and then take it into my grandmother. And the first thing she would do is cut the tops off all of it and leave about an inch of root and the tops and say, go put it back where you found it. And I just take those tops and bury them back in the ground and we would harvest early enough that it would actually start growing again before winter would come and kill the tops back to the ground. And every year it seemed like there was more than there was the year before. So that, that kind of gives you one way that you can do things. But the other thing is this stuff grows so well that you can decide, I want to make some horseradish today. And if you have, especially if you do a container system like we've been talking about, You can go out and pick one of them, yank it up out of the ground, cut as much off as you want, and just stick it back in. I mean, literally, that's all you have to do. You just cut it off. What you? I need about that much. Cut, put it back in, it'll start growing again. That's how awesome this stuff is. And then you wonder why people use the garbage that comes from supermarkets and things like that. Now, the top of this plant is very hairy and very rough and very tough. But if you keep ducks, let me tell you something, they'll eat it, and they'll eat it until it won't grow anymore. I planted some in some of my berms and thought, you know what, there are you little feathered things. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, y you won't eat that. And like, until it got later in the season, they didn't, but when there was things like there was less and less to browse on, they started hammering it, and they hammered it, and they hammered it, and they hammered it, and just stopped growing. So you do have to provide some protection, at least from some livestock and ducks and geese, I can tell you for a fact. I don't know what chickens would do. They'd probably dig it out of the ground because um, they dig everything out of the ground. But but ducks will eat it till it won't grow anymore. Other than that, it's, it's pretty damn hardy. So I have a link to where you can get a pound of it from a very well-rated seller that on fakespot.com checked out with an A, a average for the reviews. Uh, get a pound of it on uh, on Amazon if you want, if you just need it that way. I'm going to suggest that if you have you know, a grocery store around you that sells it, you could just buy horseradish there, take some of it to use right away, leave, some, you know, leave a couple inches of length and plant the tops wherever you want them, and it'll start growing. If you have a Whole Foods around you, they're almost certainly going to have it in their produce section. I don't have any growing right now, and I need to get some going. And the last couple of times I was at Albertsons, they didn't have any, which kind of shocked me that they didn't have any whole horseradish root. 
Uh, but I need to get some of that going again. I may pick some up online just because I don't know the next time I'm going to go down to Whole Foods and deal, deal with the people that are down there. Or um, Central Market. That's actually the place I'm thinking of. One of the cool places to get stuff to grow is Central Market. You go to their produce section, look for things that can repropagate, and it's some, some pretty cool stuff you can find there. The next one I have is another true perennial, but it's true perennial to Zone 7, maybe Zone 6, if you really heavily mulch, but it's called New Zealand spinach. This stuff propagates very, very easily from seed. It's a, it's a spinach-like plant, but it's not really a spinach. It's a little thicker than your typical spinach, and it has a little bit of kind of that okra thing going on, but it's very mild compared to okra. It's not, it's not heavy like that. It's not really, really slimy. When you saute it, it doesn't, it kind of almost goes away to give you an idea. Where okra, when you cook it, it just bleh, it all comes out. Um, it's, it's a low, Postrate growing herb, which means it grows laterally out as a ground cover. The seeds are big, kind of almost almost look like a sandbird, but they're not really that pointy seeds. And pretty much to plant this stuff, you prepare an area like you would for anything, scrape some dirt away, throw some seed on the ground, cover it over. If it stays wet for a week, you're going to have shoots coming up and it's going to start growing. It's very, very tough, very, very hardy. Um, I grew it here in my, my garden in Mansfield, Texas. I didn't know it was perennial. I did nothing to protect it. We're zone 8 or 7, depending on which map you look at. We're right on that edge. That winter was a harsh winter. We had several snows. We had plenty of freezes. And that spring, I'm starting to get the garden ready going, and I look and I see all these green shoots coming up. It all came back from the ground. So I'm going to say it's, it's, if, you, if you give the, the, the root mass a good mulching, it's definitely hardy into zone 7. And I've read some stuff online maybe into zone 6. Best uses for this, in a salad, mixed with lots of other greens, by itself, you won't like it. it there's, it's a lot of these perennial greens are like that. You put six together, they're wonderful. Put three together, they're pretty good. Put one by itself, kind of not so much, right? So too much of anything is not a good thing, I guess. So that's one way, and sautéed is great, too. Again, with other greens. One of my favorite ways to use this, sautéed is, and I haven't included this today, but you can almost include arugula as a perennial, because if you get it growing good enough, it'll reseed and come back on its own. So arugula, purple sweet potato tops, leaves, sweet potato greens, and New Zealand spinach sautéed together. Again, bacon grease, a little bacon crumble, a little feta cheese, or a little blue cheese. Just awesome. And there's so many greens you can do that with. That technique just keeps giving over and over and over again. And so... Any of the greens that you can grow, just think about doing those types of things. And when I say sautéed, I'm talking about wilted. I'm talking about we get our oil hot, the greens go in, they get a bit of a stir around, and when they when they wilt, they get they're hot, they're off. You don't keep cooking them. You overcook them, they're just not that great anymore. Since they're wilted, they're done. The last one I have for you today is lovage. The best way to think of lovage is perennial celery. It has a very celery-like character to it. And that's how we're going to use it, like celery, but more in either maybe some salad-type stuff or cooking. Young leaves sprinkled into a salad, you get a celery taste. Actually, a quite strong celery taste. There's no celery. Where did it come from? It's all in your head. No, it's from the lovage. Uh, so that's one way you can use them. It, it, it's also an herb that one of the ways it was cultivated in the past is, as it started to grow, they hilled dirt up around it, just like celery and blanched it so that the, the stalks became more tender and mild and whiter. And uh, if you do that, it's, it's much closer to a celery substitute, but it's still, it's still very intense celery, and it's not juicy like celery. Celery holds a lot of water. It's a much more fibrous uh, plant. So my preferred way to use this, again, leaves in, in anything 
for flavor. Soups, salads, you know, sautés, you name it. You give them that celery flavor. Stocks chopped up finely and using your soups and your stocks and other things like that. Um, not so much in salads. It's a bit too sharp, in my opinion, for using that way. I've never tried blanching it. I've read about that. I, I personally don't think it's worth it. But now we have a perennial celery, which is honestly much easier to grow uh, than celery. And my understanding, the root's edible as well, but I've never tried it and don't really know much about it. But definitely a great culinary herb to add as a perennial to your system. So there you go, 12 perennials that you can grow on your own property. You can grow most of them, if not all of them, in wicking bed type or container gardening situations as well. And I think many of them are actually tailor-made for that because a lot of them, they grow like weeds in their climate. And their climate tends to lead toward the maritime type climate. Mild summers, lots of moisture, deep soils. Many of us don't have that. But we can mimic that through partial shade, highly uh, enriched uh, growing material, wicking beds that stay constantly moist, mulch, and, and you know shade, properly applied shade. And I really think that if you are one of these people that's like, I don't want to garden, uh, but I wish I could produce some of my own food, this methodology, this concept of using some annuals, lots of perennials, in container-based systems is something really to look at. And to start thinking about things a little bit differently. And I talked about this with the aquaponics show that I did with a couple, with a couple weeks ago as well. And where you have to start thinking a little bit differently, and it's, it's, it's strange for me too, because I grew up in Pennsylvania. At least the best part of my growing up, I guess I'd say I grew up in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I was, I was gardening with my grandfather who had been doing this since he was a, a child himself. They were subsistence gardeners. And the, the land we were growing on had been, you know, had manure turned in and compost turned into it for years. And you're already in Pennsylvania where you could almost take a tomato in, in May and throw it on a hill somewhere and come back and there's a tomato plant. I mean, and it would grow and produce tomatoes before the end of the year. That's how just how stuff grew there. And so we, we grew with that kind of a mentality. We have plenty of summer rain. Like I might water twice during a summer during a drought that was two weeks without rain or something like that. And here it's, that's laughable. And uh, deep soils, that, that, that Pennsylvania you know, clay loam, just some of the most fertile ground that there was. So we put in, it was about a third of an acre garden. And all the staples, peppers, cucumbers, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, onions, garlic, corn, potatoes, all that stuff. And we put them in in rows, and we grew, you know, a season. And you, the stuff that would come in irregularly would be like, yeah, tomatoes. You'd start getting a few tomatoes here, and then more and more and more. But at the end of the season, you get a big, huge, you know, uh, crop. When My grandmother would make what she called barbecue sauce, which I, I or barbecue beef, which is not barbecue beef. Uh, but that's what she called it and tomato sauce and chow-chow relishes and things like that. But we kind of went toward a big harvest. So there'd be a day that the old man would come to me, the grandfather, and he'd say, it's time to harvest the garlic. Go get pull all the garlic. Take a wheelbarrow down there and pull your bags and bags of garlic out and put them on this grate and let them dry, trim the tops off them, bag them up and hang them up in the cellar. That's the mentality many people are coming from, and it's the mentality I grew up with. And what I've learned over the years is unless you have the really rich, fertile soil or you can develop that, if you're in harsh environments, especially, you know, my grandfather was retired. My grandmother was always a stay-at-home mom. There were always kids to do work. There was always somebody there to, to be vigilant and stay on it. 
what I've moved toward with the container gardening, the aquaponics, the aquatics, etc., is let me do, I'll do all my trees and bushes out on the main property and let them do their thing. And, you know, as that system develops, they kind of are self-maintaining most of the year. And the stuff like this, it's more of a, an active grazing situation. There's always something available to eat. And instead of picking, you know, 100 pounds of something or even 50 pounds of something, we're picking a few beans, a few leaves, you know, a few greens, you know, a couple tomatoes, a baby squash. And we're, we're making a meal that day with a little bit of everything. And as the season progresses and things success one to the next, those change. And what that doesn't result in is a huge pantry full of canned goods. But if we extend our growing season, we can grow something almost all year round. And then we do have carbohydrate storage crops like tubers from uh, daylilies, like Jerusalem artichokes, like sweet potato that can take us through that time. So hopefully that kind of frames in the whole show and all of the things that we've talked about today. On that note, uh, if you like this show and the work that we do, uh, one of the ways you can help support us is by... Uh, doing your shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com is uh, simply a way you can support us while you do your shopping at Amazon, for now anyway. We might add other things to the tspaz page uh, someday soon. But when you go there, you can click a link, you get on over to Amazon. And when you get over to Amazon, you can just search and do whatever you want, and guess what? Whatever you buy that you were going to buy anyway helps support us. And I really appreciate those of y'all that do that. It's a real simple, easy, painless way. It doesn't even really cost you any more time, and it certainly doesn't cost you any more money. There's no Jack Spirico surcharge or anything you buy from Amazon through T-Spaz. Um, but the other thing that I do is always try to put stuff out for review. The, the item I have for you today is special, and it, I'm being a little selfish, I guess, when I choose it for the item of the day because I am the co-creator of it. Yep. Uh, this is a book called The 1% Effect, Sell Your Home Fast and at Asking. It's written by Dustin DeFriest and Jack Spirico, yours truly. And I have put out many times on the air how to do this. And I'm going to read the four houses that we've used this method on, when they were bought, what we sold them for, and how much they sold for, and how long they were on the market from my review. Purchase $19.99, three bed, two bath in Mansfield, Texas. Purchase price $87,250. Sold in 2001, selling price $109.9. Time on market nine days. Offer was full asking price. Purchase 2001, three bed, two bath in Northampton, Pennsylvania. Purchase price, price $137.5. Sold in 2004 for $199.9. Time on market two days. Sold at full price. And so seller waived the inspection to prevent additional offers. In other words, they knew it might have an offer higher than the asking price. And they, that was as much money as they had. And they said, we will waive the inspection if you'll accept our offer right now. So we did. Because that's all, you don't find any nastiness now, right? Um, purchase 2004, four bed, two and a half bath in Mansfield, Texas. Purchase price 119.9. Sold in 2011 for $149,900. Full price offer with property on the market for seven days. Purchase 2006 is a bug out location. You remember the anthill? Three bed, two bath mobile home on five acres in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Purchased for $69.9. Sold in 2013. Asking price $89.5. Sold at full price. Time on market 13 days. Few things to keep in mind about this. Okay. The first house was bought in the dot com run up and sold in the aftermath of the dot com bubble bursting. So we bought it in the best of times, sold it in the worst, and we still made money, and we still sold it in less than a week. 
The third house was sold before the real estate recovery, when lending was still very tight, and my own listeners were asking me, how do you expect to sell your house in the current market? Um, the, the house sold in 2013 was a mobile home. We sold it for almost, well, sold it for almost 20,000 more than we paid for it. Real estate agents didn't even want to try to sell a mobile home in that market at that time. We had to actually, like, we need an agent to do this shit. Don't worry about it. We've got it taken care of. And this is just, the 1% effect is a system that I developed for myself. That it, it, it's really no secret. And here's what it comes down to. In the end, all buyers are settlers. That's the key. Every buyer, no matter if they're buying a $150,000 starter home or a multi-million dollar estate, is a settler. And what I mean is they have a budget, and then they have what they want. And inevitably, their wants exceed their budgets, and this is a constant. Again, being a wealthy buyer won't change this sort of celebrities that are buying $25 million mansions and up, okay? So what people do is they set a budget, they set an area to search for homes in, and they look at anything and everything that seems like it might work for them in those parameters. Not a single home will be perfect, even if the emotional couple convinces themselves that it is the perfect home, in the end, they always settle for what they can afford in the area they wish to live. And most buyers define quite a small area to look in. So what you do is you simply make your home 1% better than anything else on the market. And people would say, is it really that simple? In a word, yes, it is. The key, though, is the execution of that objective. In other words, how do you determine exactly how to do that? What do you give priority to? How do you go for a, how do you form a concise plan to stand out as 1% better than anything else in your neighborhood and price range? Well, I developed a system to do that and you know from my track record it works. I take real estate seriously. There is too much on the line not to. A house can go from your biggest asset to your largest liability in one quarterly downturn of the economy. Yet there are always people who want to buy a home that can get funding, always. The key is making them pick your home even in tough markets. And what about during a boom, you say? Times are good now. It's even more important now to get the 1% effect. Sure, houses sell fast, but most people right now, um, while we have the biggest boom in our market in the last 25 years, there's still good homes on the market for over 120, 180 days. I'm helping my son look for a home right now, and I'm finding homes 120, 140, 180 days on the market. Why are those houses on the market? Little things that stubborn sellers won't fix. So not only don't they have the 1% effect, they have what I call the dreaded 10% effect, in that their houses are at least 10% worse than the average home for sale. Even if they're going to sell for less, even if they're asking prices less, because the person has a budget and they usually are looking like a $20,000 spread, and if this house is shit in their head, even if it has great bones and great potential, and for $15,000 more they can get a house that looks like it doesn't really need anything, They'll spend the extra 15 grand because it's not that much in a payment. This is psychology. And, and the, the, the homes that we're talking about, the ones with the dreaded 10% effect, they're great homes to buy. They're the ones I look for. But buyers like me are few and far between. In this book, book Dustin took my system and developed it into a step-by-step -step guide anyone can follow and succeed with. The cost? $9.99 on Kindle. It's only available on Kindle right now, but you can get Kindle anywhere, Okay. Um, you can get Kindle for your PC or your Mac if you don't have a Kindle device or your smartphone. You can get a Kindle app for it. Uh, I love Kindle for reading books, honestly. But um, here's the good part. If you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. So I'm going to ask you guys a favor. I don't ask a lot of favors out there. 
I'm doing this and supporting Dustin more for Dustin than me. I, I am the, the, the co-author. He did all the real work. I provided the information. He turned it into the book. And I've taken a much smaller piece of the royalty off of it than, than Dustin has. I, this is another example of me trying to help an entrepreneur that was motivated enough to actually freaking do something succeed. And what we need now to get this book to start getting outside of the TSP community is lots of reviews on Amazon. That's what will make this happen, sales and reviews. So if you have Kindle Unlimited and you're not looking to sell a house anytime soon, please get it anyway. Peruse it and give us an honest review. That's all I ask for. If we can get a hundred reviews of this thing, we'll get out to the larger community. That helps Dustin and it helps me because people want to know who is this Jack guy. And that helps build our community as well. So I'm kind of trying to make this a community effort. And if you don't have Kindle Unlimited and you don't want it, then, you know, hey, it's, it's $9.99. If you're going to be buying a house soon, that probably means you'll be selling one as well, right? This will save you so much time, effort, and money. I want you to understand that, that we put this out, and I've had real estate agents tell me, good ones, that if the average person knew what you tell people for free on the air about real estate, they wouldn't even need us. We'd all be out of business. And I've had good ones tell me, I've learned things from you. And the best real estate agents say, what you teach is what I do. And that only is the 1% effect. It's about 1% of real estate agents to do that. Translation, you're probably going to get a real estate agent that doesn't know the stuff that's in this book. They think they do. They talk like they do, but they really don't. So 10 bucks is an insurance policy to make sure that you market your home properly, that you stage your home properly. Without breaking the bank, money well spent. So check it out. Again, it's called The 1% Effect. Sell your home fast at asking in any market by Dustin DeFriest and Jack Spirico. You can find it at TSPAS or you can find a review today. Or just you know, If you go to tspaz.com, click the link, end up on Amazon, just search for The 1% Effect and you will find the book really easy that way. And Again, please leave us reviews. All right. So the other way you can help us out, I talked about this. For those that don't want to spend a lot of money or whatever, uh, we're on Patreon now. Uh, you can support us for as little as a dollar. And if you're one of the people that say, man, I wish you didn't have all these commercials, uh, the $3 a month and above supporters on Patreon, I am now putting out every episode of Survival Podcast, 1985, yesterday's forward, completely commercial-free through the Patreon feed. So that's a little extra thing there. Now, let's talk about the song of the day. The song of the day today is a song I love, so much so that I've actually played this song before. And... I, I, I just learned something very interesting about the uh, the writer and performer that did this song. It's by a guy named Bruce Hornsby and The Range. Bruce Hornsby is the guy. I remember when the song came out back in 1986. I remember the MTV you know video when they actually had music and videos on MTV. You know when music television actually was music television. And I remember the first time I heard this, I thought to myself, is 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 that is that Don Henley? And as soon as I looked at the guy, I'm like, that's not Don Henley. Boy, he sounds like Don Henley. So I actually quoted another song recently in an episode, and that song was End of the Innocence, that is by Don Henley. And when I was doing some research for that song, for, for the show that we did that I included the quotes from it in, I, uh, I found out something I didn't know. That song was co-written by Bruce Hornsby and Don Henley. In fact, what happened was Bruce Hornsby came out with this song, The Way It Is. Don Henley heard it and said, I want to work with this guy. 
And Don Henley's like this major rock star out of the Eagles and all at this point. And Bruce Hornsby's the new kid on the block, basically. Just at his first hit, he gets a phone call from Don Henley. Would you like to collaborate on a project? They worked together and ended up developing the song The End of the Innocence, which is a great song as well. And I, I just thought, well, maybe that explains it. Maybe when Henley heard this guy, he's like, that guy sounds a lot like me. I bet we'd work good together. Uh, you can think what you want of Don Henley. I'm not exactly a fan of some of his politics, but uh, other politics I guess I am in agreement with. But uh, the music's good. The music's just always been good. So that's kind of just like a little background story here. Then the other side of this song is what the song's about. This song's about race, racism, institutionalized racism. There's, there's a line about a law, law in 64 that was passed to give people a little more, and that's about the Civil Rights Act. But this is about like the mid-80s when there was still a lot of roadblocks in the way for people because of their skin color. And I'll acknowledge there still is some racism problems in America today, but it isn't what it was at this time. And I actually feel like this was a turning point. This was a turning point where my generation was coming of age in the high school. And we had friends that were, were black. I'm talking about the white, the white Gen Xers, right? That, that like... Friends that were black that were like great people. And then we had people that we didn't like that were black. But we had people that we like were white. We had people that we didn't like that were Asian. We had people that we did like that were white. People that, like we started to really realize this is all bullshit. This division was all bullshit. We started to rebel, many of us, against our own parents. I'll admit it. My parents were racist as shit. They really were. And my grandparents were worse. My grandmother, who was on her knees every day, as a devout Ukrainian Catholic, was one of the most racist people I've ever known. And there was like a conflict there. But growing up in the 80s in, in Jacksonville, Florida, in the South, I saw the last real vestiges of open, outward racism, and you're going to say, well, it's still going on today. Hold on. That was generally seen as acceptable. And by 86, it was dying off. And that's when Bruce Hornsby brought this song out, basically saying, let's keep going. Now, here's the other thing about this song for me. This song, to me, is not about racism, even though it's about racism. Bruce Hornsby says it's about racism, so it is. But what it, to me, really is about is that was one issue that people refused to accept the way that it was because it didn't have to be. And I feel like that about so many things in this world. So many things in this world that seem too big to do anything about, but I don't care whether it's through voluntarism and agorism, or whether it's through alternative media, or it's just through people standing up and doing something about it. Just because shit is wrong, and just because it's always been wrong, or just because it's been wrong for a long time, doesn't mean it has to stay that way. It absolutely does not have to stay that way. It can be better. It can be better if you don't believe the lie that it has to be that way. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I want you to remember one way you can make a change in this world is by growing just a little bit of your own food. It means more than you'll ever realize, especially when you take a child and you switch the mind on to the fact that that's possible. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Just the way it is. 